Words, they get golly hard when they jumble Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle Murking fool, like Squirtle and Kate Boo Cold blood is with this rhyme scheme, I'm a boss This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about words with one and two syllables. Shame, anger, guilty, afraid, and the longer words that always brush up against them. Intimacy, tolerating, and loneliness. My guest today is Christy Tate. She's the author of what is certain to be a New York Times bestseller and Netflix original, Group, How One Therapist and a Circle of Strangers Saved My Life. Welcome, Christy, and thank you so much for the book, and thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me, Ellie. So um, I've been kind of debating where where to start. Um, But I think maybe with what you were struggling with before you met Dr. Rosen. And Dr. Rosen is the the leader of your group therapy group um, that you've been involved in for for many years and have written a book about. Uh, So maybe we can just start with what your life was like before therapy. Sure. So that summer that I first called Dr. Rosen, it was many years ago, and I had just finished my first year of law school, and I surprised myself by doing really well, and I hadn't expected that. So I was pleasantly surprised about what that meant for my professional future, but at the same time, my instinct about what was sort of going on for me personally, which was very, very little. I described my personal life as a wasteland. I didn't have long-term friendships. I watched myself keep everybody at arm's length. And I dated really, really bad matches for me, men who didn't want to settle down. And all I wanted was to like curl up on the couch and have a boyfriend. And I could see that my outsides didn't match my insides in a way that was really troubling. And I didn't know how to fix it. I was smart. I was already in a 12 step program, but I just knew I needed something outside of myself, something more than 12 step, something more than a self-help book. I read at home alone and I didn't know where to turn until a friend suggested her therapist. And so you say you didn't think you would do that well in law school, and it was a total surprise. Was was that just because you knew you were smart, right? And you say in the book, you know, the professional area of your life wasn't the really the big challenge. So was it more just, oh, I didn't think something that good should could happen to me, or that I thought it would feel better if it did happen to me? You know, that you expected to feel better about it? You know, it was actually both. There's so much mystique, maybe less now, but at the time, there was so much mystique around law school. The big line was, they told us, you're going to go into your first day of classes and look to your left, look to your right. One of you won't be here when the semester's over. <laughs> like, I had this idea that I had just jumped into a shark tank. And it was really just school. And And then to your other point, I was really surprised that it didn't fix me. It didn't fix me at all. It actually made me very depressed because I thought, look, I can apply all the willpower in the world. When the whole, my whole law school class went to a St. Patrick's Day parade, we were in Chicago, everyone's young, and we have just enough disposable income to go to a parade. And I said, no, I begged off. It was a beautiful Saturday. And I went to a coffee shop by myself and I studied for hours. And I got the results that you would get if you forego all social opportunities to study. But I didn't know how to do anything else. I knew I was hiding in studying and achievement. And I knew I couldn't stop. Yeah, like a safe place and a controllable environment and, and outcome. In, 100%. You start the book, you're driving around, you've got a bag of apples in the front seat, and you think, like, where can I go? What's the most dangerous neighborhood I can go to where someone could just shoot me in the head? Um, and and yeah. you mention in that, like, a feeling of hardly existing, and then also feelings that you were a misfit as a child. And not so much it didn't seem like a feeling, but just this belief you had. Yeah, I was a misfit as a child. Yeah. Um And then you you've been bulimic at this point for what, 8, 10, 12 years, you've been in therapy. And as you said, a friend mentions this group therapy, um, which 
at the time, did you have any experience with or, or thoughts about like what this group therapy might be? You mentioned in your acknowledgement, a thank you to Irvin Yalom. Um, and maybe we can start with who he is and, and, and how group therapy came about. Sure. Yeah. So I, I didn't know who Irving Yellome was at all. I was probably in group with Dr. Rosen for four years before I ever realized <laughs> there were groups around the country. Like uh, my therapist, Dr. Rosen, would go on these extended, um, I thought they were vacations, but then somehow we found out he was doing professional development, going to these group relations conferences. And I thought, Oh, and I realized there were lots of me all over the world, people like me who were trying to get well in a group therapy context. Um, but when I started, all I knew was that I had a law student budget and people kept, I was crying all over town and sort of coming unglued. <laughs> and people would say, do you want my therapist number? And I would say, no, I can't afford therapy. I'm a law student. Someday I'll have a fancy law job and I'll go to have an analysis or whatever y'all are doing. But until then, I felt like I was only able to pull off like a grassroots thing, like a 12-step meeting is a suggested donation of $2. So I thought I, that's where my people are. And then when my friend suggested her group, what, what she said to me was like, oh, it's so cheap. It's $70 a session as opposed to 200 which is still a lot of money, and I had to take out loans to do. But I thought, oh, okay, well, this is more uh, affordable. And I didn't give one real thought to what's it going to feel like to sit in a group with people. And before you get put in a group, you have three individual sessions to just assess and discuss. I'm sure he's trying to figure out what group I belong in or where to put me. And when he finally said, you know, I think you'd be in a co-ed group with doctors and lawyers, it's the professionals group, that was the first time I pictured going into a room with other people, in my case, it was going to be men, and like bearing my soul. And it, I was, I balked. I was like, no, is there another way? And he said, this is the only way I know to get you where you want to go. And I couldn't think of a good argument back. So, and I thought, well, I'll try it. I go to 12-step meetings, and in those meetings, there are men. And so I thought, well, I'll do this until I, you know, when I make the big bucks, then I'll go get a real therapist. This sort of was in the back of my mind. On the back of the book in big writing, um, it says you don't need a cure, you need a witness. And that seems like maybe that's one of the distinguishing factors um, and not just one witness, maybe, because I guess you have that with a therapist, but that that that's one of the elements of group therapy that makes it unique as opposed to, to traditional therapy. Absolutely. I think what I didn't appreciate before was that by going into a group, I was gaining a therapist, but I was also gaining peers. And those were my witnesses. And like you said, I mean, I had, I had dabbled in some previous therapy and I would tell my various therapists the bizarre things I did with food or what my fantasy life was like or what, how unhappy I was. And that was, that was helpful, but there was, there was something for me about going into a situation. I'm, I'm coming into therapy saying, I don't know how to have relationships. My life is devoid of them. I'm so lonely. I'm looking for a bullet to hit me in Cabrini Green. Can you help me? And my therapist offers a session where I can work on six relationships at one time. So him and then all the people in the circle, it seems pretty efficient for one thing. And they really did. I mean, the first act, if someone asked me the other day, when did you know you were getting better? And I think the first clue I had that I was going to, I was going to come out a different person, which is a great promise was when he suggested that I tell the group what I'd eaten the day before. And that was like a complete secret. I did really weird things with food. Now that I think about it, now that I've told the story and written it and told my group and had the process around it, it doesn't sound so crazy, but I was 
very guarded about the fact at night after all my food was done, I would binge on red apples, like six, sometimes 10. I'd had a couple 12 apple nights and I thought this is disgusting. This makes me unlovable. This is why I'll be alone forever. And somehow Dr. Rosen intuited that there was something there. He could like smell the secret. And he told me to tell the group what I'd eaten, which I didn't want to do. I was like, how about I tell you about sometime I had sex one time? And he was like, nope, let's stick with the food. And I turned it over to the group, shared with them. And then he suggested every night I call one of my group members and tell her what I eaten. And that was when he said the line to me, you don't need a cure. You need a witness. Cause I was like, I want you to cure me of my apple binges. He's like, I'm not going to give you a cure, but I will give you a witness. And that's when I knew something very radical was happening and it felt like cellular. And I thought, well, I'll stick around. It was so painful. And I knew something that painful, something good has to come of that. Right. I don't know. Well, yeah, and I think it's brave that you're like thinking, yes, it does, right? Like, because you could think the opposite. You could be like, this is too painful. I'm going to run or, you know, this isn't, this is just ridiculous. And, and so now I think throughout the book, you end up questioning yourself here and there. Is this a cult? Is this just weird? Is, is Dr. Rosen just some negligent freak? Um, which I think is, is reasonable, right? As you go along and yeah. that there is this, element that you must have been able to feel that was like, no, I am, I can, it it may be painful, but I can feel it's also opening something up. Um, Because you say you learned in therapy that there was a reason you felt so part and alone, a reason why your heart was so slick. And that that didn't happen in eight years of a a 12-step program, right? So this, from the beginning, must have felt different in a way that gave you so much hope, even though it didn't feel good. And and let's talk about the secrets a little bit, because you say to Dr. Rosen before you begin, well, well, I don't know about this no anonymity, right? Don't I need to protect you? Because you actually knew him, recognized him from a 12-step program. And Dr. Rosen yeah. tells you before you begin group that he doesn't need you to protect him, that, you're, that that's not your job, that your job is to tell. So what did you think at the time? And then what, looking back, do you, do you see now in the role that your secrets played and keeping other people's secrets play? Sure. At the time, I thought, I remember that session where he said, well, so I was like, I recognize you. I've seen you in 12-step meetings. And I told him that in my second session, because I thought that he was going to kick me out. Like, you can't see patients who with whom you've sat in a 12-step meeting. I knew things about him. And he said that was not a deal breaker. And so that was a shock to me. And he was like, tell the group, when you go to your first group session, you tell them everything you remember me saying. And that was completely shocking to me because I grew up in a home where privacy was really, really important. So was this notion of you don't air your dirty laundry You don't tell people your problems. You were supposed to put on a smile and um, show the world who you wanted to be, whether you were that person or not. And so early on, my eating was very dysfunctional. I would say by second grade, I was already binging. I didn't start purging until seventh grade, but I was really, and it was a secret, and I, I, I had the sense that the ethos in my family was like, don't tell, don't tell, because one, it will make it realer. You tell, it becomes a real problem once you tell. (laughs) The second thing is, if you tell, people will think there's something wrong with you, there's something wrong with us, and will be besmirched in a way that will be socially devastating. And so I had this sense of anything that happened in my house. Like if someone lost their temper, which is a totally normal thing, everything began to feel like a secret because I thought, well, I, I, probably, I probably shouldn't tell anyone that my dad got really mad on Christmas Eve about something very seemingly innocent and it sort of unraveled one night. Or don't tell them that the orthodontist was very a little bit untoward with me and my sister at the end of our orthodontia treatment. Everything accumulated in my gut as a secret 
and I couldn't imagine the freedom of letting it go. And so when Dr. Rosen says, you don't have to protect me, your job is to tell, I felt something inside of me loosen up. Like I'm walking into a situation, I've committed now to a situation where the rules are upside down from what I grew up with and what my body carries. And when I look back at that, I think that really, really, really saved my life. I think the weight of my own secrets, my eating. Every year I would be sad on the anniversary of a tragic thing that happened in my life. It's in the book. I was present when a family friend's dad drowned and we were on vacation in Hawaii. And every year I'd be so sad around the anniversary and I would think about it. And I had the idea I couldn't tell anybody that it was bad to still be sad 10 years later or that it was somehow stealing something from the family who lost their father. My father was still alive and I didn't feel like I had a right to any of my feelings about that. So when I came into group and everything was on the table, every emotion, every everybody's name, I would say something in group like, oh, I saw a social worker and Dr. Rosen stopped me and said, what was her name? Wait, it felt like a trap. <laughs> Our name. Like, wait, could she get in trouble? Could I get in trouble? That's that was sort of my battle cry, this sort of arrested development train of thought I had that like telling was going to get me in trouble. But I knew from twelve step program that telling is how you actually get well and how you bridge to other people. But there was still something inside of me that it took many, many sessions for me to understand that telling was liberation not just for me, but for everyone who hears and everyone for whom I'm holding a secret. Let's talk about what, what you just said, that bridge to other people, because I think throughout the book, this is the piece that just rises up, rises up, rises up, um, is that relationship of intimacy and aloneness and um, secrecy, right? That 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 by feeling that you have to deal with this alone or hold it alone, then that um, dismantles the bridge to potential intimacy. Um, but it's tricky all over. I, I was when I was reading your book, I was remembering Brene Brown talking about um, a, a barrier to intimacy, um, which is like the opposite side of it, which is oversharing, right? And, and that's often the case, right? The flip side of the same coin, either like not sharing or so much wanting intimacy that we overshare. Um, and so if you're someone who's having trouble with intimacy, that gets really tricky. Um, because when you do share overshare, then you're shut shut down or, or pushed away. But then by holding everything inside, you're also lacking the ability to, to create intimacy. Um, were you aware, like through, through the first five years of therapy, that group therapy, that this was what you were tackling and that this was what you were sort of navigating through? Or, or is that more something you realized in hindsight? I think early on, because of the group context, and I watched other group members be able to, they were able to tell the difference between sharing their feelings and sharing information. So early on, I would go on dates and I'd come to group and I'd be like, well, he never called back, you guys. And, and I would think I'd done a really good job on intimacy because I told him, I'm in group therapy and I'm a recovering bulimic and I don't eat sugar and I had this GPA at law school and I felt like I would do like an information dump, which was, as you pointed out, like that's the opposite of intimacy. That was, that was frankly, that was pushing people away, like vomiting on them. And what I learned in group was true intimacy was sharing a feeling. Well, I feel really nervous to be here. I feel happy to be in your presence. Like I would rather tell you, um, a thousand data points than to just say, Ooh, I feel nervous that those were the kinds of genuine feeling statements or, or another one that was huge for me is saying no, saying no to someone. And the first person I said no to was someone in group. Somebody had asked for like, asked me to help them over the weekend on something. And I couldn't cause I had to work and I was a new attorney. By this point, I graduated from law school. I had a big job. 
it was super scary. I was trying to do a good job and I had to go into my office on the Sunday. And one of my group mates said, will you come and help me with something? And I couldn't say no. I kept saying, well, I have a window from 4.11 or I could come after 5. And it really made no sense because I needed some downtime and laundry time and just I needed to go to a meeting, you know, a 12-step meeting. And he was like, why can't you just say no? And this was happening in groups. So I have everybody's feedback. And they're like, yeah, why don't you just say that it won't work for me? And I was like, because he won't like me. He won't like me if I say no. I didn't feel entitled to no. And Dr. Rosen said to me, if you can't say no, you cannot have intimacy. It's not possible. And I was like, I was floored. I had never said no to anyone. I would ghost. I would show up resentful or I would show up and do a terrible job (laughs) or I would just stretch myself so thin that I lost my desire in all of it. And that's no way to show up authentically and with intimacy. So there were lots of ways I was blocking intimacy and I was learning along the way because each group session was kind of like a laboratory, an experimental laboratory to see, see all the ways what I was doing wasn't working and that there were better ways, easier ways to live. Well, and you, you illustrate those throughout the book, right? The, the relationships you're having. And as a reader, you know, I think, and probably the group members are thinking, why isn't Dr. Rosen telling her to break up with this person or stop this relationship? <laughs> but then you can see that through, through it, like you're having the experience that allows you to learn that lesson. And I've been walking around for the last three days with a visual of you um, that is extremely powerful and helpful, uh, but a little... Uh, disturbing now and then of you under the blankets sucking a part of an unclean man's anatomy and and but it's it's so great because for you to share that because then you know I, it must have been half a dozen times in the last few days I'm like oh like this is that situation where there's going to be a consequence of me not being able to say no or not having a boundary or not saying what's really going on for me and instead thinking oh well I'll just try to get off by myself um, so I can do what I need to do instead of like telling this person you know what um um, I, I don't have time to talk to you right now, but let's talk about this later or something like just to have yeah. that come up so clearly um, that this is not the good solution uh, to just sort of be willing to, to, you know, make it work at any cost. That is such a, that's such a fundamental lesson. And that exact scene that you just cited, I I was mad at Dr. Rosen for months after that. Like, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me? Why in the world? I would go to group and I would say, oh, I went to my boyfriend's house and it was really filthy, you guys. It was filthy. And I bought him food and all the things I was doing that, like, my girlfriends were giving me the side eye. They're like, what are you doing? But I kept waiting for... Dr. Rosen to decree that I didn't have to do it. And when it was over, when I came to that conclusion myself, and I was like, wait a minute, I'm done. I'm never doing that again. And I knew it in my bones that I had hit the bottom. I had to hit bottom. And that's what I think that's why I could never be a therapist. I just couldn't watch someone do that. I don't well, know how and, and, I did it. But I, I, I hadn't horrible. thought of it till you just said it, but that it was because you felt it in your bones, right? And there's that difference between the intellectually understanding versus the emotional and physical experience, right? So probably if he would have told you, um, well, you need to break up with him, who knows, like he could have thrown you even more into it. But yeah, what a balancing act for Dr. Rosen to, to sort of ha- hold that responsibility responsibility and that sense of when when do I actually step in um, and say enough. Um, Another dictate early on from Dr. Rosen was that you were going to have to feel all the feelings that you'd stifle since you were a kid. Did you get the gravity of that challenge at at the time? No, not at all. I thought, what's he talking about? I've been in a 12-step program. I've done really hard work on myself. I don't throw up anymore. Um, and so I thought he was sort of like, oh, I'm going to have to cry. I'm going to have to cry in group. <laughs> I had no idea. I had no idea. I was going to have to go back more than once in more than one session to what, what I would describe as like a pre-verbal tantrum state 
over and over again, um, if he would have told me what that was going to look like and how painful that was going to be, I wouldn't have believed him. And I probably would have run the other way. And in fact, he probably doesn't know. It probably looks different for everybody. But I'm grateful that he sort of gave me a heads up. But the, how deep that was going to have to go it, in, in the moment, I would think this is not this felt felt so unsafe and so scary to let myself go to those deep, dark places. And when I look back now, I'm like, well, of course you had to go there. You were looking, I went to change my life and the way I related to every single person, including myself and all the fundamental aspects of human life, eating, sleeping, having sex, all of it. I wanted it all to change. So I was going to have to do something pretty drastic, pretty deep, so it makes sense now, but whew, it's very intense. And, and so was that level of intensity of, of expression, was that new for you? The pulling out your hair, the, the screaming, the, um, you know, hitting onto the carpet, like, was that something that, it, it, and erratic's not the right word, but like just that intensity of expression, was that something that you had ever experienced in your life prior to the group therapy? No, I'd never heard of that. I'd never seen it. I think I knew early on in my family that the value was kids, especially little girls, should be self-contained, quiet. My feelings were sort of met with a sort of like an eye roll from my family, like, here we go again, Christy's so dramatic. And maybe I was just kind of mopey, nothing like what I did in group. And I just didn't know, I, I had never seen that kind of ferocity that I felt in my own body when I got to group. And I, I think that if you stuff your feelings for, by the time I got there, it was like 25 plus years, all of that, I mean, it starts to, I mean, it just combusted. <laughs> so I'm grateful it came up and out. But I had no idea and had not seen anything like that. I mean, I've seen other group members. Um, they sort of paved the way for me. And my book isn't their story, but they were the ones who showed me, like, okay, if you're going to rage, it might take your full body and it might take a really long time. And you might have to do it more than once. A lot of times through the book comes up like what happens when we swallow the disappointment and kind of in unison to that, we see you constantly fighting so hard in these relationships that obviously in hindsight, you can see and as a reader, you can see like, this is not, this isn't good. Like, she didn't even like this guy. Like, why is she fighting so hard? I mean, we, and we can understand it, right? As we're reading, but we're thinking that with ourselves. Why and why did we fight so hard? We didn't even like that person or they were treating us so badly. And Dr. Rosen, like you at one point say that you know, are these challenges a gift or are you, are you going to starve and suffer? And that it's so hard to know, am I just pushing away because this actually could lead to intimacy and I can't deal with intimacy, so I'm pushing away? Or is it because this is just a terrible, unfulfilling relationship? Um, mm-hmm. and, and what he tells you is the answer is to keep showing up. You've got to just keep showing up. Um what does that mean for you? Like, what did it mean when you heard it? And, and what does it mean for you now? Yeah, that's a great question. Because early on, when he would say that, I'm thinking back to some of the early relationships when I first started group. And they, I had so much to learn about, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to be intimate with men who are really, really dirty, like physically unkempt. I did not know that. <laughs> I was like, I was 28 years old, and maybe by then I was 29, and I was like, oh, okay. So keep showing up. When I first heard him say that, I heard it as you have to stay in the relationship. You have to stay and play it all the way out. Otherwise, it means you're not willing. You're not willing to do the hard work of intimacy. And I kept thinking, he, at any moment, my boyfriend's going to crack open, and he's going to really embrace hygiene. And we're going to live happily ever after. And it kept not happening. And so 
But I felt like, well, I have to stay. My therapist told me I have to stay. Stay. <laughs> and eventually at one point I was in a group and another woman said, you know, maybe keep showing up means keep showing up here in group and being honest. And it doesn't mean you have to stay in every relationship with every fool. Um, she was pretty angry at how I was at the treatment I was colluding in. I mean, none of these men were doing anything to me. I was participating in it. Um, and so what I think now is that the idea, I mean, I think today what showing up means, um, I have to show up long enough to sort of sift through what is mine, what is a growth edge, and what is unacceptable behavior. I still have to figure that out in job situations, um, in ways that I interact with other, I'm a parent now, like how I interact with the school or different parent groups, like I can't cut and run before I understand what, what from my past is driving me, where is my voice, where is my self-esteem, and I take it to the places where I go to get my wisdom. I still go to group, I still go to 12-step programs. It sort of takes a village for me to live my life, and I'm totally, I accept that, and I appreciate being part of a village, but I think early on I had very dogmatic ideas that were very rigid. Like, if I do this, if I do therapy perfectly, then I will be rewarded with the relationship of my dreams. And that was sort of obviously very simplistic thinking. And when I finally, I had to learn to shift my allegiance to myself and my own growth and away from these men um, and that's when I began to not, not see myself as someone who was desperate and I had to take whatever came my way and I had to prove I was psychologically and emotionally willing to go to the mat. Like there were so many lessons to learn and I, I'm still learning them. Well, yeah, and I don't think simplistic. I think kind of what we're taught, and especially if you're bright, right? You're the the solution is to intellectualize, figure it out, control the outcome. Um, it's not to really feel what we're feeling, trust what we're feeling, mm -hmm. and then speak up, right? That's not the the yeah. lessons, especially for girls um, that we are taught, and especially if we are. Um, pretty sensitive people and we're in environments where um, emotions aren't treated as something that's safe to express and and so I, I don't I think it's totally understandable um, that that's what you, what you come into the world trying to think well these are the tools and this is how they work right right that's true and that just reminds me like of the first time that it, growing up my impression was I really wasn't allowed to be angry I was a girl um, that's just not what, it, there was no, there was no support for that. And the first time I got really, really, really mad in group, I got really mad at Dr. Rosen. I left him these like screechy voicemails and he was so proud of me and he kept saying, thank you. And these are a gift and your feelings are a gift. And he was celebrating. <laughs> yes. I'm like, and I appreciate that, that, um, that you are sharing your anger with me or something like you're, you know, I was like, oh, yes. that's, yeah. It's like, if we could it's get there. So psychotic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. like, what are you talking about? Like, aren't you supposed to send me to my room and tell me to come out when I have a smile on my face? Yeah. That's what, that's the voice that was in my head. And Dr. Rose was like, this is beautiful. This is like a symphony. Wonderful. What else you got? It was crazy. Yeah, for me, the one was, I think his name is Brad, broke my heart when, when he says he doesn't want to kiss you on the lips anymore because your breath turns him off and then you are like brushing your teeth more and more and more. And I'm like, ah, oh, why doesn't she go? Um, so what, and then in, in another relationships, you have a number of relationships and, and I guess this is the way the world works, right? If your issue is intimacy, you have a number of relationships, a string of men who, for whatever reason, aren't available to, to, to be intimate. Um, and, and at one point you're with someone who really like, he doesn't want to talk to you. He doesn't want to touch you. I think this is probably back with Jeremy. Um, yeah. and, and so is there a place where in hindsight, staying with someone, if you're, cause that's the tricky space, right? You still have an intimacy issue. So it makes sense then, mm -hmm. then you are attracted to someone or bring in a relationship with someone who, who doesn't want intimacy like where is then that bridge where you know that yes it, it makes sense because I still have this intimacy issue so so what can one do in a relationship with someone who doesn't want to be with us or touch us is it like run for the door or or not always 
Oh my gosh, that even just hearing you talk about it, I get this tight feeling in my chest. And I just remember that exact dilemma, like occupied my mind for months and months and months. And I would call friends and I would say, well, so this weekend, I had a free weekend. And as far as I knew, so did my boyfriend. And he didn't want to make plans with me. And I'm like, is this right? What is this? Is this me? Is this my fault? Am I not open to it? Am I blocking intimacy? And, you know, at first people would say, well, you know, maybe, you know, it's fine. Couples don't have to be stapled to each other. But then like more and more times I would invite him. A friend of mine was a painter and she had an art gallery exhibit and I invited him and he said, no, I don't really want to come. And it was like a huge deal for my, my closest friend is having an art gallery show. This is big, big, big for her career. And also, it was like a really low, low-hanging fruit. It was down the street from his office. It was going to be an hour. I wasn't asking him to do anything except walk to the gallery with me, look at the paintings, hug my friend, and like hang out for a little while. I didn't ask for dinner. I didn't ask for anything afterwards. And he said no. And that's when my friends were sort of like, this is a person who seems like he wants to be alone, and you don't want to be alone. So at some point, the question became now, at the beginning, it was, I've picked someone who's not very available. What do I need to do here? Is it truly him? What's his and what's mine? And then it became, am I staying with him because I'm afraid to venture out and find someone who truly is available? And when I started asking myself that question, it became clear that if I really wanted to share my life with someone, I would have to find someone who at least wanted to go to an hour gallery appearance with me. But that process is one thing to talk about. That process took me almost 18 months. It was not quick because I was wandering around in the desire and the disappointment and the earnest, I earnestly wanted to do whatever it took to get where I needed to go. And I didn't know if that meant staying or going And then clarity, I kept showing up in that relationship enough. And then clarity, I just remember one day I was walking home and I was like, I have to let go. Like, I don't want a boyfriend who I can't ever see. And I feel guilty asking him to have dinner with me. That's, I'd rather be alone. And that was sort of the turning point. And still, it took me another, you know, six weeks to like, really be clear. I'm done. I've done what I could do here. It's a very, it's a very foggy, not black and white process. That it's very painful. Even remembering it now, I'm like, oh, that was so hard. <laughs> Everyone's listening, thinking I'm going to jump right into this group therapy. Right, it's hard, exactly. man. It's hard work, right? It's hard doing. It does not feel good a lot of the time doing your work. And and so let's yeah. talk about that a little bit because. You, you stay there too. And at one point after a breakup, you say the thing that had always been wrong with me felt worse than ever. And Dr. Rosen, okay, is Dr. Rosen his name? That's not his real okay, name. Okay, I figured. But... <laughs> <laughs> so it must be weird, before. like writing, he's probably become the, in the book, this whole person to you. Uh, that's a different story. Yes. Okay. Um, and Dr. Rosen tells you not to cry alone. Um, what was that thing that that being defective and inability to attach like do you now see what that that was and how pushing yourself to not experience your feelings alone changed it like what it was you needed to experience and learn to be able to to have this intimacy in your friendships and a romantic relationship yeah that I didn't know that that I could just fall apart on other people's couches. Like when before group, I thought I was doing a really good job of like containing myself. I went to school. I worked really hard. I studied. I cracked jokes. I sat in the student lounge. And then I went home and just hated my life and binged on apples. Like, it's not even like I went home and cried by myself. I didn't cry. I ate 12 apples. That, that is the sign that something, something is brewing. Something is not being dealt with. And it was increasing. Like it used to be six apples and that was bad enough. And I could see it getting bigger, which tells me there were so many feelings there. 
And when I got to group and, and Dr. Rosen kept saying, well, uh, can you reach out, look at Rory, ask her if you can call her every night and tell her your food. Or look at Marty. At one point, I got a prescription, and I put that in quotes, um, from Dr. Rosen. Every time I went over to my boyfriend's house, and this was the boyfriend who wanted to be alone and not in a relationship, call Marty every time I'm on my way to and ask to the boyfriend's house and ask Marty to give me an affirmation. And um, he was already giving me affirmations to help me get to sleep at night. So I'm like calling these group members. They know exactly how miserable and stuck I am. And I felt them just loving me. I was so messy. I'm calling him from the Belmont train station. I'm calling from the bathroom at Sci Cafe. Like I'm falling apart. I'm falling apart. And they just kept loving me. And they kept showing up and they'd make me laugh. And they would, they would say, you're working so hard. You're working so hard, toots. That's mm-hmm. what Marty said to me all the time. And I like he knew me. I love I love to be affirmed for working hard because I do. <laughs> and and it typically gets me good results. Um, but then sometimes he'd say, Maybe you don't have to work so hard, toots. <laughs> and that felt good too. So what I realized is being with these people who just they loved me in a way that I couldn't imagine I deserved being loved. And I watched them do it. And then after years went by, I was able to love myself too and say, Hmm, maybe I deserve a partner who wants to be intimate with me. Maybe I deserve a partner who will pay for dinner or make a plan with me. And that was a long road, but I traced that back to, my group mates loving me until I could really love myself in a very concrete, active way. It's so enlightening to like thinking about the way that you had solved prior to group your bulimia was to narrow, right? Like you had chosen foods that were just awful (laughs) that no one would want to binge on um, and eaten them religiously for every meal, not a lot of foods and, and not a lot of the foods. And that was like, you just like, the answer was to cut that piece out of your life. Like by the end of the book, you're eating, you know, you're, I don't even know if you notice, like I'm sure in hindsight you do, but as it was going, like you're eating these amazing foods, you're enjoying them. Like it becomes this beautiful, fulfilling, wonderful part of, of your life um, in all aspects, how you start talking about how it looks and how it smelled and how much you enjoyed it. Like it's just, it's just magical. And, and towards the five-year point, and you had said, I thought that was pretty funny too. Like, does she notice she said five years and then boom, at five years, that's how long <laughs> it took. Um, you know, the synchronicities of the universe. Like yeah. Jim Carrey putting that check in his wallet saying, okay, in this town time, I'm going to get paid this just check and then ba-boom. Yeah. Um, but towards the five-year point, you have an epif- epiphany and it's physical and mental and emotional. And you say, I'm okay. You just realize up until then, I think you were like, okay, I need fixing. Is Dr. Rosen going to fix me? Is the group going to fix me? When am I going to be fixed? Um, yeah. So when do you feel like that that... that you know, and then it wouldn't stick, then you'd go back to like feeling like you weren't but there was a shift when you stopped needing answers. And um, you say there were disclosures, there was feedback, there was looking, seeing and being seen, there were no answers. When did that become okay? Yeah, I struggled, I would have glimmers of that. I would have glimmers of that, probably starting in year two, I would look around the circle And I was very, I got very fixated on a romantic relationship early on. I was like, okay, where's my boyfriend? Where's my clean, happy boyfriend? And he kept not showing up. And I would look around the circle and in all my groups, well, most of my groups, I was the only person who didn't have a partner. And I was real fixated on that as the proof of my defectiveness. Like, "Mm, I'm still single. I'm I I would always joke, I feel like the last orphan sitting on the curb with her, her like hair worn teddy bear and her suitcase and no one picked me and you guys have all been picked. And I had a very harsh way of looking at myself and hating myself because I hadn't figured out how to be in an intimate partnership. And so 
as, as long as that continued to elude me, I, I would say, well, this isn't working and I'm so broken and where's my, where's the life I'm supposed to be living? Cause I'm, I'm a good person and I'm smart and I'm in recovery and, and yet I'm miserable. But I remember one time it was right before I had that real physical feeling of like, I'm okay, regardless of what happens in my romantic life or my professional life or my friendships. And I remember looking around the circle one day in group and everybody, it was just one of those days where people were restless and discontent and even everyone in the circle had a spouse and not all of them were having problems with their spouse, but like they had their struggles. They were no less defective. You know, if we're going to use that, that's not even the language I would use today, but at the time they were no less messed up than me. And just because they had figured out their marriage, that didn't mean they didn't feel bereft about their bankruptcies or their broken relationships with their children or all the things that are on the plates of my group mates. And I just realized, okay, I struggle in the area of intimacy and partnership, but that doesn't mean I'm supposed to what go die until I get a boyfriend or um, that I'm so much less than them. And that's, it was it was by seeing their lives reflected back in my own. I was like, we're all just trying to figure out. We're trying to work through our knots of pain. And I deserve a seat at the table alongside everybody else. And it just, it was like the process of being right-sized instead of like, I'm the most defective person in this room. It just stopped feeling true. And it felt like you, like you had hung everything on that hanger and like in that moment you could take it off. Like you could say, oh, you know what? Like I now have amazing friendships that are super intimate. I have this fabulous job. I have this great condo. I bought myself this really cool sleigh bed. I have this, these (laughs) things, right? I don't think you'd bought this sleigh bed quite yet. Um, But, but you were imagining it for yourself, right? And you were like, okay, maybe it, maybe it's not that one thing and I'm not broken even though this is my challenge and my challenge has been intimacy and and my heart wasn't scored and now it's more scored like maybe even then I wasn't broken that needed fixing um it seems like that was a realization you had and you say later in the book you say um all my basis impulses still live inside me lying in wait impulses and I impulses to to what and and you you talk about even after I don't know I want to like ruin things for readers but even after one of the things you've really been wanting happens um, you say that that you surprisingly are feeling lonely in that moment and <laughs> and I just wanted to burst open because I was like oh my gosh I did too and and mm-hmm. and felt so ashamed and. How could that be? It must, something must be wrong with it or with me still then or now. That, that sense that, that we aren't going to ha- be the same person and have those same feelings. Um, mm-hmm. and, and you list on page 275, uh, your impulses to what, like are still lying in wait. Um, yeah. and, and where do you, where do you find, like, what are some of those and where do you find the resolution that that's okay? That's such a great question. I really, really wanted readers and to remind myself through the writing that through it all, I'm still me. I'm still human. I still have these feelings. I still have an eating disorder. I know a lot of people who have eating disorders prefer to use like a past tense language. I know for myself that I have an eating disorder and I always will. And I, that's, that helps me stay, you know, connected to myself and my recovery. But like some of my basis instincts, like for uh, just today, I was in group and I'm having a, a, a problem with a relationship with a friend of mine. And I can tell I'm pulling away. I'm not being intimate. I'm withholding my feelings. It's a very old behavior for me because I'm scared to tell her she's moving away. She's moving away. And I'm scared to tell her how sad and afraid and angry I am. This is her moving away for her is the culmination of a dream and hard work and effort. And I'm, I'm proud of her and I'm happy for her, but she's also moving five states away. And I have a lot of feelings about it. And I talked about it this morning in group and Dr. Rosen said, 
why aren't you telling her? I was like, <gasps> it's like, it was so old school. I was like, I'm going to tell her that I'm mad at her because she's moving and it's upsetting my schedule and my, it's upsetting my life plan that she's moving away. And everyone's like, we're on zoom because it's telehealth for the pandemic. Everyone's nodding their head. They're like, why wouldn't you just tell her what's on your mind and your heart? And I'm, it's like, this is a conversation, but this type of conversation we had, I've been having this in group since the day I walked in. Can I really be honest? Wait, this so that's like, you? what, 15 years? Yeah. Oh, right? I think I'm, I'm heading up on uh, 19. <laughs> on 19. So as the reader, you're like, okay, because yeah. that comes up in the book. I'm like, oh, wait, she's still not feeling okay <laughs> with anger. She's still not speaking up. She's still not saying no. Wait, wait. I thought she, I thought she got this. Um, but yeah, you, you, you do. That's yeah. exactly what I think. Yeah, yeah. And I and, think it's like the the programming is just so deep that I I always think when I come into a new situation, like I'm really good with my husband and with my children and with members of my group. I am. I, it is well oiled. I'm like I am feeling really sad right now. I feel lonely. Or when you do this, I feel this. Like I I am good there. But it's like, as I move out from the circle, I have these, I still come up against these rationalizations. Like, I feel like I can't, my friend has worked so hard to set up a new life far away. I feel like, who am I to come in and like, piss on her picnic? And it feels like I'm being mean or not a good friend, which is something I'm really self-conscious about. But really, it's the withholding. I mean, I don't have to I don't have to berate her for moving, but I can tell her I feel really grief stricken and angry and I feel like you are abandoning me. And that's an interesting thing. I haven't said that in the past two weeks when this plan has unfolded for her and I feel really distant and it's because of my behavior. It seems like something that must have been so wonderful in group therapy um, for someone who had lived the life you had up to that point, to be with people that say things that you could not and do things that you could not have imagined, right? And and I think for those, I don't remember what um, the author that wrote uh, Living Like Immunity and Loving Like Immunity talks about, like one fourth of us, and I think it's a fourth, are, you know, kind of kind of damaged in that ability. And, and and I'm guessing it's probably more, but that there are people who know they do say no. Your friend Marnie she does say no. She yeah. can tell people what's bothering her. And it, it's just, I think for someone who isn't, you're just like, it's astounding um, that yeah. someone can do that. And so I'm, I'm thinking about the, the typical therapy and you talk about it a little bit and you say 30 sessions are, are typically not enough and that people go to therapy thinking, I'm, I have something I'm going to fix and then we're going to fix it and then I'm going to be, you know, that'll be done. And one thing we can learn if we're willing to take that journey and that we can learn through reading your book is it's really not done. Um, and you say that you're a lifer um, and you say, don't I still deserve support witnesses and a place to bring my confusion and inner turmoil, even if I no longer pull my own hair or drive around hoping for a bullet to the brain. And yeah, I, I, sorry, go ahead. no, no, go ahead. <laughs> um, yeah, I definitely feel, I mean, I, when I hear that, I'm like, Ooh, I, I fully believe that it sounds a little defensive. <laughs> I think there's a part of me, I run into people who, who maybe have left a group. Um, and like I ran into a woman the other day, she's like, are you still with Dr. Rosen? Like she was so incredulous. And I was like, yeah. And most of me is proud because I know what I need to have the life that I want. So I'm mostly okay with that. And I think that I think in, in this country and in our culture, we have a real problem with the way we think about mental health, that we wait for a crisis and then we scramble to try to put um, scaffolding in place. And I feel like, let's just have the scaffolding and let's just do this. Like, that's what I know works for me. And I'm really, really attached to both the process and the people. And I feel like um, that I know that that works for me and I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't want to let it go. And I have other people in my life, you know, I have a spiritual mentor who's not related to group at all. And, and she'll say, are, are you done? Like, maybe you've done all you could do there. And I'm like, um, 
I'm not done till I'm dead or done growing. And that doesn't describe me today. So I'm still there. Well, I think it's not what you're doing there. You didn't go there to do something. It's you being there, right? It's you showing yeah, up. And yes. and that's the distinction. And that I think it was a, like every human being on the earth needs the things that, that's provided there. Support, um, someone to help you with your inner turmoil, to be seen, to see. And, you know, if we look around at our, our world today, the problem, I think, Every problem we have pretty much derives from the majority of people in existence not having a place for that and either feeling like, you know, maybe if some have it and that's wonderful, but for the majority who don't, that it's a weakness to need it or that it doesn't exist or they don't even realize that, like, it's missing. Yeah, I think that's, that is 100% my perception as well. And when I think about the things that have have just in this past year, you know, for anybody, I don't know how anyone's getting through 2020 without support, like built in commitment, weekly support. I really, I don't know how they do that. And not to mention, there's all kinds of new things coming my way. You know, we've got my husband and I, our parents are getting older. I don't know how I, I don't know how to do that. And all the feelings that come with that without you know, the support of group and the people, the thing that is also extremely practical for me is everyone in group has been through things that I've been through. There's someone in group who's already had to deal with their parents, um, their, um, de- not demise, but that's probably a bad way to put it, but like, <laughs> they, <laughs> like ah, they, they, gentle demise, we hope. Yeah, like there's people in group who are ahead of me in like life milestones, right? They've already yeah. graduated kids, they've launched kids, they've they've helped their parents get into elderly living situations. So that's incredible resource, which is a very dry way to put what they are to me. But here's the other thing that I've discovered in the past five years is, and this is after the time of the book, but there are people who have come in now who are younger than I am who have the same longings that I had. They want to be in a relationship. They can't understand why they are able to have successful law careers and telecommunications careers, but they can't get a second date. And that's exactly who I was. And so now I get to, I get to take my seat and I get to serve as an example as someone who came through all the mess of that phase of my life and it came out on the other side and I have a family and I have a partner and I have fulfillment where there was none when I started. And so there's something also gratifying about serving as somebody else's uh, example or role model or just to know I was there where you are and I'm here now and you will have your, no one's going to have exactly my story, but I'll be here every step of the way while you find your way. We live in, I think, such a society and a culture that puts all the focus on the external work, right? To be happy, to be satisfied, to be successful. It's everything that you do outside. And I had seen a quote this morning just popped up on my phone by James Allen, and it said, you cannot travel within and stand still without. And throughout the book, we can see that as a reader, like the the more changes you're making internally, the more internal work you're doing, life changes are just showing up um, outside, um, getting a new condo getting great friends, um, getting a great job and being willing to go for those and then, and then accept them. Um, and I think that is such an important, uh, gift that you give readers, um, being able to share that, opening up and showing your vulnerability and and being able for people to see, you know, what happens when you do the work, um, in, in alignment with that, I was also wondering if you were worried about writing this book and putting all this up for public judgment. I was thinking about back in the 80s, um, my family was big into uh, bioenergetics and gestalt and primal scream. And I remember in the 80s, a bunch of their friends who were gestalt therapists, I think Joe Hart at the center of it, being sued because they had had people, you know, I think his main thing was he'd had this woman t- who was overweight take off her blouse and go on the ground and moo like a cow. Um, um, you at one point t- smash a plant pot on your skull. Um, yes. 
was there any concern about putting all of this personally and also as a group out there in the public view? Yes, definitely. Less so about the personal, because I sort of, I feel like my life as it is stands for the proposition that I offer, which is hope and change. And so I feel like what I cared more about when it came to myself was like telling the truth. I didn't want to hide how long it took, how messy it was, how, how many bad decisions I made along the way. Like I made a lot of bad decisions years into therapy and I wanted just to be honest about that. And so I was very focused on that. The, the part about the fact that now this group process is up for public scrutiny in a way that it wasn't without the book where I've gotten a lot of support from that is I've shared it with, obviously, with Dr. Rosen and my group mates have all read it. And we've had quite a process about it. Um, everyone's identity has been hidden and protected, um, and as well as Dr. Rosen's. But still, the spirit of the group is now going to live in the world as I saw it, right? Because this is only my version of events, of course. But um, in terms of worrying, I mean, I think because when I very first started writing about this, I let the group in on it. I let Dr. Rosen know about it. I felt like it was in some ways blessed by the group and there were safeguards. You know, I knew they were reading drafts all along and they've been with me all along. So it wasn't ever just like I sprung it on them, which would have never worked. (laughs) That would have been like so antithetical to how the whole group process works. And, you know, I am aware this is not going to be for everybody, either the book or group therapy or Dr. Rosen. And I've had people, even people all along in my life when I would tell them a story like, oh, I went and got a henna tattoo on my stomach because I don't like my breath. Be like, what are you talking about? And I would explain the story. Oh, my therapist, made a suggestion that I get a henna tattoo on my belly that says, I hate my breath, as if that's going to make any more sense to the person I'm talking to. And people would give me the side eye. People who've read the book have pulled me aside and said, like friends of mine, they said, do you trust your therapist? Some of the things he told you to do or suggested or condoned seem really, really out of bounds. And I totally accept that. I think that readers should absolutely engage with the material exactly as their emotions come up for them. But I know what works for me. I believe in the process for, for me. And I think it's a fascinating story for anybody who's hopeless and doesn't know if true transformation is possible. They may not choose group therapy They may not live in Chicago. They're probably not going to call up Dr. Rosen and join a group. But there are principles to tease out that could anybody could use. Like, could you tell one person? Could you enlist one of your intimates to be a witness for you? Could you let go of a secret? Could you begin to tell your feelings? Could you begin to identify your feelings? If I had done any one of those things, I would have been better off, even if I hadn't joined group. But I didn't really, I didn't know that those were things that you could or should be doing to have a more fulfilled life. And I'm thinking that everyone, especially after they read the book, are going to be thinking, yeah, doesn't, I definitely do. And doesn't everyone want a Dr. Rosen to, to be able to say back to you, oh, Christy, you didn't make bad decisions, right? Were those bad decisions, Christy? Were they bad? You know, and then rub his heart and smile at you. So. What a gift. It is a huge gift. It's a huge gift. And I certainly hope that everyone, in in whatever form they can take it in, that they have someone who's on their side and believes in them. I remember I just would look at him early on when I'd come in with these disastrous dates that lasted less, one guy lasted less than an hour. And he would just be beaming at me like, you're doing great. Like, if we, we went out for an, 50 minutes to get a piece of fish with this guy. And he just never stopped believing in me. And I've seen him give that gift to all the people I sit in the circle with, like 
people who declared bankruptcy and keep getting fired. And then they're, he believes they're on their way to prosperity and it takes some time, but they get there. And the unwavering part is his belief in it. It's really, it's astounding. It's more astounding for me to watch him give that gift, that generosity of vision and prosperity and abundance to other people than for myself, because it's an extraordinary thing to have in your life. And I'm sh- I know there's lots of ways people have that kind of person, and I'm grateful I found it the way that I did. That's so, so wonderful. Well, thank you so much. And um, I was not joking about your book. I'm sure going to soar to the bestseller list. And then if you haven't already, um, there's going to be a film or a Netflix or an Amazon original. Like I have no doubt. So, oh, you're so kind. Yeah, I really I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for the work that you do. I love I love your podcast and I love your thank blog. You. And you're part of the solution, and I'm really happy to have had this time with you. I, I'm, I'm so happy to be able to have read your book and talk to you, Christy. Thanks. Okay, bye. Thank you so much. Enjoy the ride. Bye. Okay, bye. <laughs> Thanks.